you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 296 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. I'm recording live at RubyConf 2019 in Nashville, Tennessee. For any of the listeners who approached me to talk about the show, you have absolutely made my trip. Thank you so much for listening. Today, my guest is one of my favorite Ruby friends. Noah Gibbs is a Ruby fellow for Appfolio, working on the core Ruby language and related tooling. After over 30 years of communicating with computers, Noah now believes that communicating with humans may not be a passing fad, and he's trying it out. Thank you so much for joining me today, Noah. Wonderful to be here. Awesome. Noah, what is your developer origin story? Boredom. I uh, grew up in the middle of East Texas, in the middle of nowhere, and at some point, I added an Apple II to that. And from there, well, it wasn't that there was any good instructional materials or anybody else that did that kind of thing, or, or really anything that made it a lot easier, except there was nothing to compete with. And I've got to say, as, uh, as, as incentives to learn about the computer go, having absolutely nothing else to do is hard to beat. Let's discuss Appfolio. You were regularly featured on Ruby Weekly for your in-depth analysis of benchmarks and new Ruby features. How did the opportunity with Appfolio happen? Uh, it's kind of like when you ask somebody how they went broke. You know the standard answer to that, gradually and then suddenly? Yes. Uh, so in some sense, what happened is Appfolio was looking for somebody to work on stuff around the Ruby language for Ruby 3x3. They wanted to, they wanted to help out. They wanted to sponsor a position. It's kind of a giving back thing. And they talked to a lot of folks. I don't actually know which folks, because they don't usually tell you who you were interviewing against for a given job. But I, I know at least one name, because the guy came up to me and, and told me about it later. Um, but they talked to a bunch of people, uh, which meant they were going so slowly, I assume they just weren't actually interested after the first couple of times. But, you know, I didn't, didn't tell them no. I just didn't expect to hear back. Uh, and it was kind of a surprise when they said, hey, actually, we do want you to do this. I said, really? I haven't heard from you for a while. You sure? You, you got my name right, right? Uh, <laughs> but no, seriously. Uh, yeah, they, they chose me that way. But they chose me and were talking to these other people because uh, a lot of what they wanted was a combination of in-depth Ruby analysis with in-depth C analysis with somebody who honestly could, could kind of write and do it almost as a PR angle. I mean, mm. it's, it's not that I am the world's best at any of those three things. It's that it's a fairly rare combination and you can already in your head go through the list of people who have that combination of skills because sure. in-depth Ruby analysis, in-depth C analysis and writing, just go through the list of good blog posts and go through the list of authors. That's, that's who they could be talking to. I, I don't know which set of those people they actually you know, asked, but, but if I was going to hire somebody, that's who I'd ask. Very cool. And so was there inspiration to hire you to bring more traffic to the site, to be an authority in the space? Uh, oh, good question. Uh, I have some, some hopeful answers and some cynical answers to that. Let me, let me think about what, what, I should, uh, what I should say loudly to your listeners. Um, <clears throat> part of it was really to give back to the Ruby community. Uh, Appfolio has gotten a lot out of Ruby. Uh, they've done well by it. Uh, and they, they do want you know, to, to do, do something to give back. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, hiring an employee is an easier way for a CTO or a director of engineering to give back than saying, we're going to give Ruby $200,000 a year or whatever. Like, it's just it's easier to justify in a corporate sense because corporations don't like anything labeled donation. Uh, but they don't mind hiring people. Uh, and so, so that's worked out well. 
Partly Appfolio is a uh, software company in Santa Barbara, and it turns out it's one of two very large, I mean more than two, but two very large uh, Ruby companies in, in, in that area, near Santa Barbara, um, both of whom are in similar areas, like the other one's a construction company and Appfolio is a, a, a property management company, primarily, in both cases. Uh, and so I have co-workers who really only know the company exists because they've seen my stuff or heard me speak. Uh, and you, you could do worse than to think of me as a PR and recruiting expense. Anyone who has read Noah's writing knows that he's an incredible writer. So I'd love to know, what is a day in the life for you, and how do you decide what to write about? Well, so some days are routine. There are definitely kinds of articles where I write the same kind of article over and over. And if you actually you know read every article I write... I'm sorry, uh, uh, but if you read every article I write, you notice there's there's some things that I do repeatedly. You know, I have a strong tendency to analyze each pre-release of Ruby as it comes out with Rails Ruby Bench. Uh, I have a strong tendency to play with a few options in certain ways and, and write the same kind of article over and over. So some of that definitely happens. Uh, partly, it's kind of a what am I working on as I write benchmarks, as I as I try to sort of move the code forward. Very often, I hit interesting. And so some of my some of my blog posts, the same thing I tell everybody else to write. Hey, I hit this interesting bug. I should write it up. Um, and partly uh, having this be my real, actual nine to five uh, weekly job. I mean, your day to day, week to week job uh, gives me a lot of time to sit and think about it. There's, it's not so much that I have magical ways to come up with topics that other people don't. It's that I have time to go through those those list of things that every blog post will tell you to do about how to come up with ideas, and I have enough time to actually do them. Oh, that's amazing. So I'm curious, you know, you are so ingrained in the Ruby community and you always seem to know what's going on with the latest versions of Ruby. How do you do that? Are you watching conference talks? Are you just reading blog posts? Are you watching Ruby core very closely? Do you have any resources that you recommend for listeners who really want to be ingrained into it? Uh, a little of all of that. I'm very text focused. I mean, when I'm, when I'm consuming, uh, I have a much easier time with text than video. I'm not saying everybody does, but that's, you know, that's me. Uh, and so uh, things like Ruby Weekly, you know, blog posts and Twitter. Twitter has been, become a, a bigger thing lately. Basically because when you start out, so when I first got into Ruby quite, quite a while back, uh, I came from C. And I didn't know JavaScript, and I didn't know CSS, and I didn't know SQL. And I promise you there were many deep sides on my part as I realized I was going to have to learn all this stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, came from, I came from C and systems programming, which in a lot of ways is a much smaller surface area of stuff to learn. Uh, and so I subscribed to Ruby Weekly, and anything that sounded even vaguely interesting, I read every week. Uh, I, I referred to that as drinking from the fire hose. Uh, and Ruby Weekly has more stuff in it now than I did then. <laughs> it's a bigger fire hose. So don't, don't be ashamed if you can't absorb it all in a given week. Uh, at this point, I can skim, but I can skim because I have years of background of reading deeply. Uh, and so you know, skimming works better. Same deal with conference talks. Every so often, they'll be a really interesting one that I'll watch, even though video is not as much my thing, because sometimes that's what there is. Um, but whatever works for you, you know, if video is your thing or if, if podcasts are your thing, you know, whatever you've got time in your life for. Uh, I don't have a commute. I work entirely remote, and so I don't listen to a lot of podcasts for the same reason. I mean, occasionally. There, there's, there's cool ones out there, obviously, you know, yay present company. Uh, but, but pick what works for you in your life. Um, I would say if you have an enormous amount of time for this, then put in the time. That's a, that's a fabulous way to do it. Uh, and if you don't have an enormous amount of time, then you'll have to pick what you care about. Priorities are the classic human remedy to, I want to do everything, but it turns out someday I will die. 
<laughs> That's a really interesting way to look at it. And speaking of conference talks, let's dive into your RubyConf talk, Conscious Coding Practice, The Three Concrete Steps. So I love the assumption that we all want to get better at coding. How did you arrive at that? Uh, man, how do you miss that? Like, how, <laughs> how do you spend 10 minutes in a room with developers and miss that? Uh, Have you been on Hacker News, though? Because I think all those developers think that they're, they've peaked in terms of their coding <laughs> skill. <laughs> you know, as, as much as, as it's fashionable to hate on Hacker News, and as much as I hate on Hacker News, and as much as there are very good reasons to hate on Hacker News, and, and honestly, I think it is overall a, a negative effect on the world at large, um, those are people who are hungry to get better. No, really and truly. Like, if you look at it, the kind of... I'm sorry if you folks are on Hacker News, any of you. Um, not just because of what I'm about to say, kind of in general. Uh, the kind of neurotic that they are, the kind of posturing that they are, the way that they don't want to show weakness, but at the same time feverishly work on weird arcane stuff, no, they want to get better, at least as much as the rest of us. They're just off on a different track than what I think is the effective one. Uh, but I'll say not only have I done an enormous amount of teaching, and my wife's a teacher, so I've got someone to you know tell me a lot about how to do it. I've, I've taken actual you know classes in teaching and read books, uh, so I'm I'm very convinced that my way is about the right way. There's no shortage of passion to improve there, even if I don't think their methods are logistically effective. I completely agree. It's a ever evolving profession, and you can never really just max out. There's just always something new to learn. So you mentioned this during your talk, but what is the dragon in the room in regards to getting better at coding? <laughs> she is she is referring to a, to an illustration. I, that, that's my favorite illustration of the ones I was able to produce. I'm very happy that I, I managed to, to draw that, that dragon blowing fire onto an Apple IIe. Uh, <laughs> um, so we've all got our, our various little things that we're afraid of, uh, posturing folks who don't want to show weakness more even than the rest of us. Um, there's always something we're worried about, and for a lot of computer programmers, the the name that we give to that black beast, to, to that fear, uh, is the computer science thing. And if you're fresh out of boot camp, or fresh out of college, or teaching yourself, what you mean is there's this whole academic discipline that it seems like everyone's supposed to know, and I don't know it. And then when you get to mid-career, you think, oh, there's this whole understanding of algorithms and white papers and technical methods and the academic side of it, which other people seem to be able to just apply. And I've tried reading some of that, and it's hard, and I don't know it well enough. Uh, plus, of course, in the mid-career, you have the, the constant hanging dark fear of other people are getting promoted, and I'm not getting promoted as fast as I want, and I don't know why. Or alternately, and this is often even worse, I got promoted, and I have no idea why, and other people didn't. And I still don't know why. Um, and then eventually that, that mellows a bit, but turns into the late career fear. Other people have been keeping up with, with and again, the computer science thing you, usually has kind of an academic feel to it. You usually mean the white papers. Oh, man, I'm 10 years into my career, and I'm supposed to be keeping up, and there's these new things that have come out, and I haven't been reading up on any of that. And, and uh, you know, what, what do I not know? What do I not kept up with? And... I'm a big believer in the idea that if a fear like that is so nearly universal and you keep meeting people who are competent, that's probably not actually the problem. Because you meet an awful lot of people that manage to do their thing really well 
despite almost everybody feeling that way. I mean, I meet computer scientists and, and programmers, not the same thing, those two groups, uh, who are good academics. And I meet ones that are good programmers. And uh, everything I see about that suggests those are two separate skills, which occasionally you meet somebody who's good at both. But you meet computer scientists and, and golfers, uh, some of whom are good at one and some the other and some both. And I don't think that makes them the same skill. I completely agree with you. So I want to get better at code, which of course that is absolutely true. So I'd love to get your take on if whether or not reading code is effective or coding exercises. Are those both effective? Uh, they can be. Depends a lot what you're trying to do. Especially early career, reading code will give you something that is not otherwise available to you. I had a, I had a, a teaching assistant back in college a, a long time ago now. Um, fellow named Scott Draves, and, uh, you know, being being a stupid kid in college, I said a little rant about how stupid a lot of the, the common list stuff that we were learning in class was to, to RTA, and, and bless him, uh, he sent back another little rant in return about how trying to teach uh, new programmers large-scale Lisp object-oriented features was like trying to, to teach people about Shakespeare's meter when they'd never read any damn stories. Uh, and he's right. He's absolutely right. Uh, an awful lot of these language features that they try and show us are simply designed for things we've never bothered to encounter yet. Uh, and reading code can fix that. Reading code can genuinely help with that. Going out and finding out what a programming project looks like will help you have the slightest idea of what problems a programming project might have and what things might look like a solution to that problem. And, and that's useful. I mean, what, when I say early on, I don't mean that that stops being useful. I mean that by the later parts of your career, you've already worked on enough projects that you don't necessarily have to seek that out. You may have broad exposure already, and if you don't, you should go read code. Uh, coding exercises are not terrible. Uh, I am obviously, you know, in the middle of, with, with, with that talk and with a book I'm writing on the same topic, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of hating on coding exercises as inadequate kind of professionally here, but they're not terrible. And, and we've tried a bunch of things, and, and some of them are pretty good. Code cutters, in particular, I feel have a definite use as part of a regular regimen of coding exercises. And some of the earlier coding exercises give you toy problems to work on before you're really able to work on a serious size problem. And there's a purpose for that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not a bad thing to have. Uh, I feel that coding exercises tend to lose a lot of their value as you've been doing them for longer and as you're repeating the same kind of exercises. And I think that's mostly a weakness in the exercise. I think if you look at other professions, there's a strong tendency to keep practicing. Uh, and I think that, um, that there's room for that within our profession. But I think we have some exercises that work okay early on, and, and I think that's good. Um, and there's a reason that people tend to fall off pretty rapidly, like they do them for a while and they do less of them. It's because they're not seeing value after a while. And I think that's the exercise's fault, not the people's fault. That leads me perfectly into our next question. You introduced a concept during your talk called the coding study. Can you tell me more about that? So uh, this is an exercise I stole from a completely different field of study. This, this talk is one that I've been working on for quite a long time. Not so much because the content is hard, but because if I, if I introduce it in the obvious way, nobody's interested. Whereas if I introduce it, if you go read the abstract for my RubyConf talk, like everybody reads that, it goes, oh my god, I have to see this talk. Um, <laughs> it's the same talk. It's, it's true. You did need to see this talk. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's the same talk. It's just, you know, it's, uh, I figured out how to sell it. Um, so the coding study is an adapted exercise from a, from a, a different field of study, from a different profession. Uh, and they, they do it a lot, and they, 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 you know, where, where they tend to repeat the same exercise over and over and get value from it. They don't stop doing that, and they continue to do it as they get 
very, very experienced. And again, they continue to get value from it. They don't do it because they're told they should. That's not how a profession works. I mean, once you're off on your own, you do the stuff that works for you, and you stop doing the stuff that doesn't give you anything. Um, but the basic idea is you choose a tool, a task, and a purpose. It's not quite as straightforward as, as the one sentence sounds, but it's not much more complicated. You choose a tool, a task, and a purpose, and, and you do a little exercise there. You do it with a time box, preferably a fairly short time box. Uh, that is to say, you choose a time limit, you work for that amount of time, and if you're not done by the end, well, you're still done by the end. You just you got as far as you got, and then you stop. Um, I feel that that's a concept that we certainly we have in, in programming, but I don't feel we use it often enough. And then at the end, you throw it away. I don't mean that you can't keep a copy of it anywhere, but I mean you do not write this as production code, because a lot of our practices for production code, a lot of our practices to make these excellent artifacts that will be modifiable later, that will stand up to various problems, that have a lot of resilience and are, are straightforward to, you know, to refactor and do these things, compromise learning. That is doing a lot of planning for a future that, especially for a little exercise, may never come, which will never come, especially because you've chosen a time box. You know that future will never come. Um, but you can learn an enormous amount if your whole purpose is learning, and a lot of these production best practices are not a fabulous way to learn. Um, and so, yeah, basically it's, it's kind of in, in the same way that when you write code for DevOps, you've got a whole other mindset and the code comes out different. When you mm -hmm. write code for unit testing, you've got a significantly different mindset. The code doesn't look the same. Uh, what's that lovely thing they say? Your tests are just code without tests. <laughs> yes. Uh, in the same way, when you write yes. to learn, there are a number of things that that, 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 you know, a number of principles of that that change what code you produce. And it turns out you can write much better learning code if you don't pretend it's production code just like you can write much better tests if you don't pretend that they're the sort of code that would be tested. That makes so much sense. Well, we are definitely going to dive into more of your insights, but first we're going to take a quick break with our sponsor. And now for first, today's podcast, and also, believe it or not, potentially a turkey. That's right, a turkey is brought to you by Brian Mariani of Mirror Replacement, the recruiting shop built by Rails engineers for Rails engineers. You heard me correctly. Brian Mariani at Mirror wants to send you a turkey this year. It's Thanksgiving season. We have all so much to be thankful for. I know I'm thankful for all the Ruby friends here at RubyConf. And Brian's thankful for the Ruby on Rails community and Mirror, which he founded 12 Novembers ago to serve it. As a sign of gratitude, if you're a Rails developer currently in the market, a startup seeking to grow your team, or just simply curious to hear about the market and salary trends, Brian would love to chat with you. And then believe it or not, he's going to send you a turkey. You can reach him at brian at mirrorplacement.com. Turkeys are in limited supply, so please reach out to Brian today and drop the code word, wait for it, gobble gobble. And if you don't need a turkey, Brian still wants to talk to you, and we'll send the turkey to a friend of a nonprofit of your choosing. That's Brian at mirrorplacement.com, code word gobble gobble. Link is in the show notes, and thank you so much to Mirror Placement for sponsoring the show. I'm in Scotland now, so I don't, I don't, I don't know if he wants to ship a turkey to Scotland. You know, I'm not sure, but you can certainly ask. <laughs> so Noah, what are your thoughts on pairing? In general, well, okay, so I'm, I'm an old guy, as programmers go. I don't just mean that I'm, you know, past 40, which isn't that that old. I mean, I've been programming a long time. I started when I was eight. So as as number of years programming goes, uh, I, I have a lot of them. Uh, and so I started before pairing was at all common. Um, and I like it a lot, and it still confounds me a little bit, in the same way that distributed systems took me a while to wrap my head around. I got there, but, but that wasn't what we did when I started, because it was years ago. Um, but pairing's good, uh, and I especially like it for teaching. Um, I've had an easier time sort of picking it up for teaching than, than necessarily uh, 
other other day-to-day uses. And again, that's, that's partly because I started long before it, and it's, it's taken some time to wrap my head around it. Um, but it's amazing for code studies. It's really, I mean, partly because it is, you know, a self-teaching sort of thing, and that means that you wind up learning a lot. And I, you, you folks, I'm sure, have heard from enough old programmers that, that you're probably rolling your eyes at this point, reasonably. Um, I don't mean in a, a thoroughly talking down, like, it's great for teaching, this is a way for me to impart my wisdom to the youngins, which, to be fair, I do a certain amount of. Um, no, one of the glorious things about uh, a coding study where you pick some part of a real world and write code for it, which I, I recommend highly, it's great, um, is that a person who isn't me, any person who isn't me, is going to see interesting things about the real world that I want. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody uh, read the, the coding study example I put up on my blog recently where I looked at the ivy on my windowsill and picked some things, wrote a little you know, code structure to produce that. Um, but when it comes to what does ivy do, uh, I picked out a couple of specific things. Oh, there's kind of a left and right, you know, motion to the to, to the stem of it. And you've got a, a leaf at each junction, and okay, it kind of it goes sideways and then turns upward until it uh, until it's all trending upward. Um, I'm not an unusual expert in ivy. I mean, I have it on my windowsill, so I suppose if I wanted to become that, I've got good access. But it, it turns out a lot of people know ivy at least as well as I do, and picking out an interesting dynamic from a real-world object is something that you can do on week two of your programming career just as well as on decade four or whatever. Um, and deciding which of those things are interesting, you don't know in advance. One of the glorious things about complexity, and a thing that a human did not carefully work out to be as simple as possible, yet that's your job, I mean, our job as we do the coding study, um, is that if somebody picks up out a completely unreasonable dynamic that's going to be a giant pain to work with, great. I've been, I avoid those reflexively. I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, I, I try hard to avoid those dynamics, and I don't even think about it. It's part of the whole process of abstracting it out, is if something looks thorny enough, I just step around it. Uh, and someone who doesn't do that can get me to actually work on that, which is pretty cool. <laughs> that is very cool and a really good point. So where can listeners learn more about the software technique that you bring up in your talk and the writings that you've been going towards? Uh, so my blog is Codefolio, uh, C-O-D-E-F-O-L dot I-O. Uh, and I, uh, I, I put a lot out there. You know, I'm a big fan of the idea that if there's a book, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have some deep, dark secret that you have to pay me for in the book. Um, first, because, of course, if anyone ever buys my book, they can then reveal my dark secret, which seems a little silly. Um, but also because you really want to know what it is I'm selling before you even consider buying it. And so my free material is pretty good. If you're willing to do your own exercises, if you're willing to put in the work, if you have the discipline, there's no reason you can't get essentially all of the benefit of anything that I'm selling, not just for my current book, but for the previous book, by just working on the stuff that I put out free. Uh, and that's, I, I consider that a feature, not a bug. That's a good thing. So anyway, blog, blog posts. Uh, turns out I put out blog posts that give you those deep, dark secrets. And so the difference with the book uh, is not deep, dark secrets. It's examples and more information on the same topic and kind of going further in depth. And here's how you plan out a, a series of these exercises to, you know, get. Because I don't have a monopoly on the coding study, which I stole from artists, as it turns out. Artists have really good life studies, and they keep doing it right up to the great master level and beyond, and it keeps working for them. Um, so even if you think you're a great master of coding, uh, again, I got 30 years experience, I, could, I keep doing this. Um, they, they keep doing figure studies long past the point where you're, you know, Picasso. 
Uh, you can learn more from the book. You can learn more from my blog. If you sign up on the blog, I've got an email class on that. Uh, just in general, I'd love to keep sending you this stuff. And uh, if you uh, if you hate the first few, you can stop. Or if you love the first few, I'll keep sending them. And so you're w currently working on a book, correct? I'm currently pre-selling a book. There are there are people who have bought the book. There are a few That's people, amazing. A few people have told me it's great, and a lot of people haven't said anything. Uh, but overall, the ratio is, is good as far as I can tell. Uh, I, you know, after selling Rebuilding Rails, I realized most people don't actually say anything one way or the other. Uh, and compared to the previous book, people seem to like this one. And I thought the previous book was good. Well, we'll certainly link it up in the show notes, but what is the title of the book? Uh, the book is Mastering Software Technique. Uh, and because that's a bit of a mouthful, it's software-technique.com. Okay, great. But you'll find it from Codefolio. If you read my recent posts, of course, I link to my book so that you can find the book. Similarly, if you sign up for the email class, it'll, it'll mention the book. Um, and at the same time, again, if you, don't, if you don't wind up buying the book for any reason, I, I'd love for you to just read the blog posts. And even more, I'd love for you to read the blog posts and then reply to me. You know, love it, hate it, either way, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. I want to give you a compliment real quick, Noah. I, you know, you have incredible, but your marketing and sales technique where it's just so subtle and kind and you offer so much free material to people, but you really provide stuff that is of value. Listeners, if you are interested at all, I highly recommend purchasing a copy of Noah's book. I am sure it's excellent. I'm going to purchase a copy myself. So how does being a father influence you as a programmer, speaker, and writer? Uh, I have the enormous luxury of having not been a father for a long time and then being a father for a long time. Uh, being a father reduces your free time so much that it keeps you pretty constantly focused on the important stuff for lack of time to do anything else. Uh, but the flip side of that is I had a lot of time to kind of branch out and, and do stuff before before having uh, my, my first kid uh, 11 and a bit years ago. So yeah, uh, it's, it's very focusing. Does it make you a better teacher? Ooh, uh, being a father has made me a better teacher, and even more than that, getting to watch my wife teaching our children and us being able to kind of give each other tips and techniques and so on, but especially her giving me tips and techniques has been good for that. Uh, in addition to being a professional high school teacher for uh, a while before she stayed home with our kids, uh, she was somebody who really wanted to teach, like she wanted to homeschool her kids from long before she had kids. Um, yeah, if you can if you can find a teacher out there and watch them work, uh, oh man. Uh, it's, it's like what I say about artists and teaching. It turns out that we haven't been doing this whole like computers thing very long, and so fields of study that have existed a lot longer than we have have really good tricks, and we should steal them. Uh, teaching is certainly included in that. Absolutely. So a hot topic in our community, of course, is Ruby 3x3 by 2020. And I know you've done a lot of benchmarking work around it, and it yep. sounds like no matter what, it will definitely ship next year. Yep. Do you believe that we're going to actually hit the promise of Ruby 3x3? I think that by and large, the answer is yes. I think that measuring three times faster is really hard. And I think it's not so much a single measurement as a whole family of measurements. Your average Rails app is not going to be three times faster. I feel very confident at this point saying that. Of course, if you look at what I've done with Discourse, Discourse is nearly twice as fast, which is kind of surreal if you think about you know, what, it's, what it's doing and how it's doing it. Uh, I think your average Rails app from Ruby 2.0 to 3.0, I'm not talking about how much more will increase in the next year. We've made a lot of progress. Um, is, is going to be nearly twice as fast. Uh, and given that Rails does such a huge amount of I.O., I, I would have I bet good money against us making as much progress as we have so far. Um, 
your average Ruby app is going to depend wildly because again, a heavily I/O bound app, you, you can't you can't go any faster. I mean, if you're already driving the network card as fast as the network card goes, Ruby is not going to speed it up. Um, we are using a lot less processor time. So if you want to pretend that using half the process, the CPU cycles and taking the same amount of time is is twice as fast, and knock yourself out. That's sure that could that could be a definition of that. Um, but mostly, yeah, I, I was honestly worried as of a year to 18 months ago about how we were going to do on the static typing. And at this point, that has advanced so quickly. Um, I, I had been worried about it, and I'm not worried about it anymore. I think that's going to be in solid, usable shape by the end. And then the other one's concurrency. I don't think guilds are going to be casually usable for most people's projects as of the ship date. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, Fiber stuff is already much better. Uh, anybody who follows my Appfolio blog work has seen some some benchmarking posts recently on Fiber stuff. And while it's not perfect, nothing's perfect. It's good. It has improved a lot. It is a lot faster than it used to be. Uh, I'm curious about auto fibers. Uh, for anybody who doesn't follow this quite as closely, um, fibers are a concurrency thing, sort of like threads, except you have to manually yield. When you're, when you're done in a particular one, you say, okay, I'm done, somebody else run, and then eventually it'll switch back to you. Uh, and that, that's both its great strength and its great weakness. It's a great strength because you get really deterministic switching between threads. You can have absolute, like the execution order goes here, 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 in the same pattern every time, which really locks it down in a way that can be extremely good. Uh, and of course, the flip side is if you don't yield control, then you've still got the CPU, whether you actually need it or not, which can be wasteful if you've got I.O. going on. You'd like to yield control every time you do I.O., but doing that manually is a giant pain, and sometimes you'll do it right and sometimes you'll do it wrong. Autofibers are the idea that you yield when you ask to yield and when you do I.O., and so Ruby can, can you know, do that in a reasonable way. Um, We've had at least two major autofiber proposals. Uh, Samuel Williams, uh, a recent addition to the core team, and a guy who's done a lot of fibers work, uh, has a, an interesting sort of higher level, more up in the Ruby parts autofibers proposal. And then Eric Wong wrote a much lower down, deep in the in the C, uh, in the C stuff proposal that I think isn't going anywhere. Uh, Eric Wong is. It comes and goes. Like he shows up and he does a lot of Ruby work, and then he's gone for a while, mm -hmm. and he's he's a little bit prickly, and so he has a has a little trouble. Uh, I think in interfacing with the core team a lot of the time. Um, his work is amazing. He's really good at what he does. He's also the guy that wrote Unicorn, for instance. Um, like it, well, I know so many Ruby patches. Like Eric Wong has done a lot of a lot of work for the community, and his work is often very high quality. But I have no idea where autofibers are going to go. If we get a new interesting concurrency primitive for Ruby three by three, it, it'll be auto. Though. Oh, interesting. That is so fascinating. We'll have to link up all of that in the show notes because there is a lot of information to unpack there. So we're on day three of RubyConf. What is your impression of the future of the Ruby community? Well, uh, so I was asked a question that I think is the same question, though it was phrased a little differently last night. And what she said was, I, I keep seeing all these things that say Ruby is dead. Like, is that, is Ruby dead? And it's a that's not, I mean, that's not how you asked it. You're, you're very upbeat. Thank you. We, we all appreciate that. Uh, but, but in some ways, you mean the same thing. Well, what I said to her was, there are two very different things people mean when they say something is dead. One of the things they can mean is, is it you know, losing users? Is it, is it dying off in terms of usage? And Ruby is unquestionably not dying off in terms of usage. Ruby has, I mean, Rails has this giant business niche that nobody else is even willing to compete for. We could use the competition. Somebody else go compete for that niche. Because honestly, we will all wind up better if there are at least two projects trying for it. 
Someone else should try for what Rails does. And by what Rails does, what I mean is if you've got a small team of people and a startup idea that you want to try out and you want to try it out as fast as possible, but you want your resulting product to be secure enough that if you put it up as an HTTP app on the web, it won't die of hackers the next day. Nothing, nothing else competes for that niche. No one else is even trying for that because partly they think security is boring. That doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, but I still wish someone would try. Um, anyway, sorry, so in that sense, Ruby is not even a little bit dead. But the thing that, say, Hacker News means by that, and a lot of other people mean by that, is will I get enormous appreciation from my technical peers for how technically cool this thing is if I learn it and brag about it? And in that sense, Ruby is long dead and will never again rise from the ashes. Uh, Ruby will never again be a language where people go, ooh, you're learning Ruby? Well, okay, engineers will never say that. Business people might. Uh, how, how do you feel about being appreciated by business people rather than engineers? No, that's a rhetorical question. If you're a software engineer, I, I already know how you feel about that. Um, they're, they're better than they seem, I, I promise. They're worth getting to know. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, you're never, you're never going to massively, uh, you're never going to massively impress technical peers, which means that we have to go back to our historical massive areas of strength, which is to say, being friendly to beginners, being very effective, and being willing to look a little ridiculous. That is to say, we have the same basic strengths as JavaScript. And if you get a dirty feeling when I say that, you should look carefully at that because I don't think it's changing. <laughs> I don't think so either, but my God, do I want that as a sticker. <laughs> that list of three is fantastic because I completely believe that. So Noah, how can our listeners follow you in your writing? Uh, well, so the, the obvious answer, uh, if you like RSS feeds, is Codefolio, my blog, again, .io at the end. Uh, if, you, if you prefer things more curated, I don't mean me curated. I mean, if you'd like someone else to handle the, the mechanics of RSS for you, uh, Twitter, I'm also Codefolio, without the dot, uh, on Twitter. And you can, you can find my various other stuff there, possibly more of it than you want. Um, and uh, you can uh, also uh, look at uh, engineering.appfolio.com, which is where a lot of my performance work goes. Uh, these days, I'm, I'm both posting to my own blog and to, Appfolio, and to Appfolio's blog. So it kind of depends what you want from me. But for performance writing, that's still where it goes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Noah. I'm so excited about your upcoming book. And of course, when your conference talk does publish out, highly recommend to all of our listeners to listen. Listeners, we will be with you again next week.